You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Welcome to Thrive. It's good to have you here this day as we celebrate the end of our series. We've said from the beginning, the historical reality is that the Jesus movement exploded, grew explosively uh, for the first three centuries in, um, in you know, A.D. And um, the question is kind of why. Historians have always asked that question, and they can't come up with a good reason for it because... Well, other than um, it's true, <laughs> or and the, the disciples believed the resurrection actually happened, and Jesus is who he said he was. But it's really, you know, it's just a reality. It exploded. And it didn't explode because it was comfortable. It didn't grow rapidly because it was widely, easily accepted by everybody, and everybody go like, oh yeah, of course, that makes sense, it all fits together. No, in fact, we find here in Acts chapter 17 today that it was countercultural, and it actually was troubling to the powers that be, both the religious and the political economic powers of the day and age. And in Acts chapter 17, we're at the city of Thessalonica. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men from of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So you see here, there's quite a bit of opposition to Christianity in Thessalonica, a part of Greece. And uh, why do Christians face opposition? You know, um, first of all, sometimes it's because it's been misunderstood historically, especially back in the early centuries. Uh, I don't know if you realize this, but the Romans looked at Christianity as a cult at the time and actually as an atheistic cult. And you go like, what? Yeah, you know why? Because the, the, the normal accoutrements to religion, priests, temples, sacrifices, were all missing. Think about it. There was no priesthood except everybody. There was no sacrifice of animals anymore. They were used to that at all, the temple. And there were no places, uh, temples dedicated to do any of this stuff. So they thought, well, they must believe something that's totally different than any other religion. And so it's not really a religion at all. They're atheists. So they were misunderstood for that. And they were also sometimes misunderstood as being cannibalistic. I don't know if you've heard that, but it's because, well, they talk about eating the body and blood of their savior. Holy Communion. So that was another misunderstanding. 
right? And we understand that. Now, there's also times that Christians have faced um, opposition, not because of the gospel itself or a misunderstanding, but because of, sadly, the behavior of many Christians. Uh, David Kinnaman wrote a book called Unchristian a few years ago, and we've kind of shared some of that. And that was not about those people out there. That was about the Christians in the church, that people that were not Christian looked at Christians and said, they're not acting anything like Jesus. Now, that's a problem. But today, what we're really looking at is in Thessalonica, we see that there is an irreducible, inherent opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ in the heart and lives of human beings. Okay? In Thessalonica, we find there's opposition from religion and opposition from power and politics and the um, economics of the day. Now, they may have exaggerated, but they did understand that the proclamation of Jesus' death and resurrection and the proclamation that Jesus is Lord was turning things upside down and inside out in a way that did not fit well with the status quo. And we've got to deal with that. We've got to understand what that means. So today we're exploring this inherent opposition that we can expect in this world, that we should expect in this world, and we um, will see in this world. And it's going to be under these three points. First of all, how Christianity is in conflict with religion. Then also how it's in conflict with power. And then how power and religion say they're going and promise certain things and never can deliver, but, uh, but Christianity actually delivers what they have promised, righteousness, that is a right status, and harmony or community. Okay? So we're going to look at these three points. First of all, in conflict with religion. And this comes up in Acts 17 at the beginning where Paul... Um, as usual, he would go into a city uh, in Rome or where, well, he didn't get to Rome too quickly, but into the Roman Empire, and he'd find where there was a religious group of people, specifically uh, people who, like him, were Jewish in background. And so he went first to the synagogue and proclaimed to the Jews first. And often, and like here, he did it for three Sabbaths. It says in Acts 17, 3, on three Sabbaths, days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. And the word for reasoning here is dialegomai, dialegomai, which is basically that he had a dialogue, a conversation. So um, that's where we get the word dialogue from, right? So he had a conversation, a back and forth, a discussion, questions and answers. Notice he did not yell and scream at them. He wasn't offensive with the way he proclaimed the gospel. He I'm sure Paul was passionate. But he did it in such a way where truth and love were together, and he reasoned with them from the Hebrew scriptures why the Messiah, it says, had to suffer and die and rise again. So the heart of the gospel, again, is always the message. And it this message did receive some people, right? So some of the Jews, some prominent women, some of the Greek God-fearers started to follow. And then it says this in the text, Acts 17.5, but the Jews were jealous. 
Now that word for jealous is actually zelao. It's where we get the word zealot from. Okay? And I loved, I, it was fascinating studying this because the word zealot, I think, oh, you just think, oh, somebody who's just a radical, right? It comes from the word picture or metaphor is like of a boiling pot. It's bubbling over and foaming and frothing, you know? So it's somebody who gets all worked up and in a tizzy. So the religious folks, when they heard about Jesus and what he was doing, got all worked up and in a tizzy. They all got bubbling over frustrated, angry about things. Now, why in the world do people get all uptight? And, because the gospel touched a nerve. It touched part of their core identity. They, religion, and I've studied religion. Can you believe that? I did, yeah, I did. I even teach it sometimes, right? Religion, at its core, says your identity is based on either what you think or what you trust or believe or what you accomplish or do, but it's about you and what you're accomplishing and what you're trying to do. And Christian, and so um, religion is about self-help. <laughs> it is. It really is about self-help. It's about trying to make things, you know, and so... Um, Christianity is about God help. That basically says, uh, you, can't, you can't do it. And boy, that, that touches. I've shared this story before, there was, um, but it's, it fits so well. I, um, at seminary, my last year at the seminary, I, I met a guy named Robert who came into the library at the seminary because there was about a million books in that library on religion. And so he was studying religion. And he had gone all over the world. He had been part of a Sufi commune, which is a uh, mystical Islamic uh, group and monastery in Turkey. He had gone and studied Native American religions. He had gone all of these places to study mystical things and icons and all this stuff. And so I started to talk to him with a friend of mine, and he looked at me finally and said, so you're basically telling me that everything that I have worked on for the last 20 years of my life is a crock of manure. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he got all frothed up. <laughs> he was bubbling over, man. I get it. It hurts. You see... Um, to be honest, we have to believe that Christianity is not like a little supplement, you know. It's not a, an improvement of your current life and saying everything's basically good. All you need is a little nip here and a tuck here and a little cosmetic this there. It goes to the core of who we are and says there's something mm, rotten at that core. We all, I have that. You ha it's like nobody gets away with saying, I'm basically good, and then I found Jesus and added him into a good life. That does not work. That's religion. And Christianity says you need a whole new life, a whole new replacement. You die and rise again. The death and resurrection of Jesus is not just for him. It's for you, too. We all die. I have been crucified with Christ, is what Paul says. It's not a fun thing to go through. So that's why they said they were turning the world upside down. It flipped everything over. 
with the normal way of thinking. Because people think you gain your status, your identity, your, quote, righteousness or right relationship with God, kind of like how you practice piano and get better at it. Well, maybe you practice. I don't. <laughs> I tried, and I gave up in fourth grade um, real quick. Okay, But you practice, 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 you get better at it. That's what we think religion, that's what religion does. You keep doing it, you go through these methods, you do this, you follow this, you try to gain better, you get better, get better, get better, and then you can get some standing with God based on that. But Christianity says all of those efforts actually are ways you're pushing God away rather than welcoming him in. The religious human being is always trying to desperately control God and get God on our side. And so that is why uh, Douglas John Hall said this. He said, Christianity is not a religion, period. And you might not like that, but I love that. And why? Because... Um, Another a man named Karl Barth, uh, he was a neo-Orthodox theologian. He basically said, uh, religion is humans' attempt to grasp onto God and get God to control him, to, to bargain with God, to work with God. If, if they really believed God, they would trust him and listen to him, but we talk to God and tell him what to do in religion. If they really, truly trusted God, they would rest in him, but we're always active thinking we've got to do something more. They would be thankful and receive him, but religion instead tries to take God and have some way, whether it's through the law, the Ten Commandments, or some method, to connect to God and get it so that we're kind of still the center of the universe. And that's why Christianity is not a religion at all, and it's going to upset anybody who's religious. No wonder the Jewish leaders were, like, boiling over about this, right? Because it's not just that Paul was indicting their religion, but every religion. Every religion. So Paul Tillich, he wrote this. He said, we are all permanently in danger of abusing Jesus by stating that he is a founder of a new religion and the bringer of another more refined and more enslaving law. And so we see in all Christian churches the toiling and laboring of people who are called Christians, serious Christians, under innumerable laws which they cannot fulfill, from which they flee to, the, to which they return or which they replace with other laws. This is the yoke from which Jesus wants to liberate us, the yoke of religion. The word religio Re and ligment means a binding together. And sometimes it's how things are connected together in our life and make sense of life. But religio also means it's kind of like the ball and chain. And Jesus came to free us from what we could never accomplish anyways. And that is a turning of the world upside down in a way that religious people, including myself and you, are not always happy about. <laughs> okay. That's our first point, but the conflict is not just with religion. The conflict also in this text is with power, political or economic, in conflict with power. Notice, when the rabble comes 
in Acts 17. And they bring Jason and the other Christians they could find because they couldn't find Paul and Silas, whom they really wanted to attack. They did not charge them with a religious crime. They could have. Because in that day, still, you couldn't deny the gods. But they didn't do that. Instead, it says, they are all acting, in Acts 17, 6, they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another King Jesus. So there was a rivalry with Caesar's rule going on, they claimed. And I don't know, you, you know when Jesus was crucified, what was written above him in Latin, Greek, and Aramaic? King of the Jews. Didn't say son of God or heretic. It was not a religious problem. It was the Roman government, the government of its day was crucifying what they thought was a rebel. Okay? An insurrectionist in one form or another. Now, that was a very trumped-up charge, by the way, an exaggeration. It's really, Paul was not stirring up the problems. It was his accusers who were riling up the crowds and creating a riot going on. And Paul himself will write to the Thessalonians after this. After he leaves town, he writes a letter back to them, and he says this. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, not, you know, anything else. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and listen to this, to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as you were as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and dependent on no one. So Christians are to be some of the best neighbors you could ever have. The people who will help you, to serve you, who aren't trying to make trouble in any way. And yet, just by the way that we live, (laughs) basically is an indictment in the system, in the world, and the status quo of the way things are. Okay, We upset the world because the world thinks the only way you can get things done is through power. And we say the only way things get done is through love. So that's why in Acts 17 they say, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar so that there is another king, Jesus. That word for upside down, to turn it upside down, is anastatao. Ana means over, and stata, o, status. Whole different value system. Flipping the pyramid, the hierarchy of society over. And that's what ticked them off. They claimed, the claim was that Christianity, if that's the way they're acting and that's the way they're living, they're going to turn over this whole status quo of the way that we've got things set up. Because if they're going to live and freely give, if they're going to live and love and serve, if they're saying this is the way to live and this is the alternate com- community and kingdom, that, how can that ever work? We are the, and the people who are in charge especially are not happy with it. 
And they said they're turning the world upside down. What's interesting is the word that's used for world is not cosmos. You've probably heard that word before, cosmos, which is kind of the cosmic order in creation. It is the word instead, oikomene. Oikomene. You know what word we get from that? Economy. They're messing around with our economics. They're messing around with our economy. They're turning that upside down. And the economy really is how things get done, how business works, what makes things happen in society. You know, the one thing I've noticed in most societies is don't ever mess with the economy. We got to save the economy. We got, the, the economy is the center of it all. It is like the thing that has to be. And Christianity looks at it and says, oh, that's not the way to set up a household. Oikos is house. That's not the way to set things up. St. Augustine, you may have heard of him. He lived in the 400s in North Africa. Um, he's probably one of the most brilliant, most influential early church fathers or Christians or leaders around. And he wrote a couple of books. One is Confessions. Any of you ever read that in college, The Confessions of St. Augustine? No? Oh, yes, OK. The other is, you yeah, well, you went to Wheaton. <laughs> the City of God. And then the other one is, uh, is The City of God. Anybody ever read that one? Yes, OK. Well, let's sum up this book, OK, <laughs> real easy. Augustine's looking at the sacking of Rome, the fall of the Roman Empire, wonder what's going on. People were all upset because this kingdom that they thought was so stable is falling apart. And Augustine is basically saying there are really two cities or two kingdoms that are running through this world and through every human heart or through the heart of a Christian. The city of man or humanity is the city that runs by human rules, kind of like Babylon did and Babel did. And that is basically the city of man is that your life for my sake, your work, your effort is to serve me, to give to me, to enhance my life. So I'm going to use you in whatever way I can. You ever met, meet people like that? That's the way even our employers work. I'm sorry, because yes, we make a deal. I'll get money, but you get, you know. Do you understand that? Sometimes we feel it's fair, sometimes we don't. That's the city of man. City of God, he says, it's my life for your sake. My work to help you. My life to sacrifice for your good. I will, totally opposite. That's why the mission statement here at Thrive, you may know, you may not know, we exist to, it says, the first word is bless, and that is our lives are for the sake of this community. Our lives are to help others. I'm, we're not here to be blessed by our community, but we are here to bless our community and then to disciple them, which is all our way to also bless them with the gospel of Jesus Christ and have them grow up in Christ. But it's really being the city of God. Christians operate in both. You live in this world, you operate in it, and you work but you also work by a different value system than this world does. And as such, that indicts what this world is like. It does, just inherently. 
Jesus does reign as king, but he doesn't reign like Caesar does. He doesn't do it by enforcing, sending out edicts, dictating. He's not a despot. In fact, Jesus says, you know, that's the way they work, but not so among you. You want to be great? you become least. You want to be first, you become last, because the Son of Man does not even come to be served, your life for mine, but to serve my life for you, and to give my life as a ransom for many. And so Jesus does reign, and he chooses to reign not through power and coercion, but through love and service and forgiveness, through grace and so he is able to deliver what they promise and never can. He's, and the reign of Jesus Christ in the Christian church and in the lives of people who come together freely and out of love and service to each other uh, shocks the world because it's like, wait a minute, we want to set up laws to make you do what you're doing, <laughs> right? And it's kind of like Toto in The Wizard of Oz. Have you ever, you know, how Toto came up to the curtain and pulled it back and you could see instead of... <sighs> You know, the government and the powers that be in the corporations. You see the little weak man behind the curtain pulling the levers. That's the reality of how fragile and how foolish it is to think you're going to ever force people, coerce people, convince people to do what only the gospel can bring. Because you don't get harmony and community through force. And you don't get, with religion, righteousness, a right standing with God through religion. But you do get it through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why um, St. Paul wrote it this way. He said to the, a church in Corinth who was caught up <laughs> in power and all sorts of stuff and status, he said, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the wise one? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs. That's religious people are looking for. Certain things, and Greeks seek wisdom. That's the power game. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, the Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God that comes through weakness and foolishness. Religion, power, politics doesn't solve the real issue. The church becomes the alternative. It's the place through the gospel alone, where our point three, you get righteousness and community. By righteousness, I do mean status, by the way. That's what it really means. It means a standing before God and before others. And we get it not by what you do, but by what is done for you. That's what the gospel is. Jesus is the one who gives us his status, his righteousness, his own perfect life in a perfect death and takes our status. It's the great exchange. It just blows me away and he does it. And he, upon a cross where he looks weak, pathetic, humiliated, rejected, is where the power of God is most seen. 
and most experienced. He loves us so much that he's willing to give it all up to give us what we could never gain for ourselves. That's why Romans chapter 8, Paul writes it this way. God does what, for, God, for God has done what the law, religion you can read there, weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We gain what we could never do through religion in Jesus Christ as a gift. It's free. It's complete. And at the cross also, we gain community. What governments and organizations and corporations have always tried to do is to bring peace and prosperity to people and harmony. Jesus does himself. This is how um, Paul writes to the Ephesians about this. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So it's the Christian church, with all our brokenness and foibles and flaws, that display what God can do. How we willingly serve one another, love one another, give to one another. We're not coerced. We're not cajoled. We're not, we don't have to bargain. We just offer and give freely. We freely have received from Jesus. We freely give to others. So we gain a status that we could never gain ourselves, and we then honor each other with the status of Jesus Christ himself, where we are not taxed or coerced, but we give freely for the sake of others. Sometimes we give to people we'll never meet. Have you ever noticed that? A time and again, we're giving food to people in our community. We have no idea who they are, but we know they need it, and we're willing to bless them. We're not forced to comply. We are willingly giving and sacrificing. That's why Stanley Hauerwas put it this way. It's only the one true God who can take the risk of ruling by relying on the power of humility and love. You might think it's a great risk that Jesus set up a kingdom that is only based on love and free response to the gospel. But that's how it grows. Always has and always will. It's the one kingdom that will last forever. You understand why this could all upset the status quo a bit? The world believes the only way you get anything really done is by force, in one form or another. The only way you get anything really done is by your human effort. And that, sadly, some Christians have gotten caught up into that understanding. And it's kind of like they justify the means they use because, well, we really want to establish. And therefore, we're going to, and then they use force, coercion. Jesus would look at that and go, like, what are you trying to do? That will never work. 
that will never work. The best thing Christians can do, that we can do now as a church, is to really be the church. Okay? To be a church that does turn the world system upside down and live that way. So if anybody's in need in our congregation, we're there to help. We're there to serve. We're there to pray. We're there to support. Anyone celebrating anything, we're there to rejoice. Anyone going through difficulty, we're there to weep with them and grieve with them. Because it's not easy, but we're going to do it because it's the way God is and who our God is and who we serve. And if there are any needs that we see in this society that we can meet, we'll meet them without being forced to do it are pushed to do it, but we're compelled from the inside to do it because of the love of Jesus Christ. So our goal, don't try to make Christianity comfortable to people. That's kind of betraying what it's about. It's not painless or quick and easy. Living out the gospel puts us all through a death and resurrection, a death to me being in control in the center of at all, and raised to a whole new life and a whole way of being. The, if anything's going to be a stumbling block, if anything is going to cause people offense, if anything is going to get them all riled up and frothy about, I can't believe those Christians, let it be the gospel. Not my stupidity. <laughs> Not my arrogance but the fact that we serve and give in such a way that they're just astounded and can't believe anybody would do that. Let that be the offense. And may what was said in Thessalonica about Paul and Silas and those Christians there be said of us. These people <laughs> who've turned the world upside down have come here. Will you pray with me? Lord God, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your, the fact that you have turned our world upside down, that you've turned our lives upside down, that what we sought in our control and our status, you give us freely because of your sacrifice. Just undo us, Lord, at your cross. May we be astounded at your gift. May we receive it fully and then fully serve others as you see fit, Lord. And help us to have the courage that we see in Paul and Silas and Jason and the others. The courage to allow an offense to be there, but not to retaliate in any form, but instead to love and to forgive even more. Lord God, um, on this Memorial Day weekend, we remember those in our nation who have given, who have sacrificed their own lives for the sake of freedom, for our safety and protection. Lord, we thank you for this nation. Even with all of our flaws, Lord, we thank you for the freedoms that we have, the freedom to believe, to assemble like we are today, the freedom to live that alternative lifestyle of the gospel itself in this community. And um, Lord, we thank you for these things. We ask, Lord, that we would um, appropriately honor our fallen heroes and to thank our veterans for their gifts of sacrifice.
Lord God, this day, we remember those who need your healing as well. We think of Chris Rodriguez, who is hospitalized and has relapsed a bit um, as of today, Lord God. We don't know what the future holds uh, for her, but we know you hold her and you are her future, Lord Jesus. We do pray for your healing. We pray for your will to be done in her life and to be with Jamie and Hillary and uh, Stephanie and, uh, well, with uh, Courtney, with all the, all, um, the children as well. And uh, bless them, Lord God. Bless them in their um, time together and draw them closer to you. And Lord, may you be glorified. We lift up to you, um, Rachel and Kai out in California and pray for your healing upon them. And for all those who have different health uh, concerns, Lord, uh, we know you are so good and you are so good to us. We pray, Lord God, that you would truly show your mercy and grace and help us here at Thrive to be sensitive to the needs of others in our community and to serve them fully and completely. Lord God, um, as we prepare for the Lord's Supper today, we ask for your forgiveness on our lives. You know, we know we've used power appropriately. We have tried to force and comply. We've tried to control you. We've played the religious game again and again. Forgive us and lead us, Lord, to trust you completely and receive your grace fully. We ask, O oh Lord, too, over the summer months that you would... Uh, bring renewal to us through your word, by your spirit, in community here, Lord. As we are entering a new phase in this pandemic, Lord, we pray that you give us wisdom, wisdom that discerns what is best for the sake of others and not just what I want to do. We pray that we would be like Augustine talked about, that city of God, who will use and allow our lives to be uh, service in service to others rather than trying to get everyone else to serve our wants and needs, Lord God. And that that itself is a witness to your gospel. Bless uh, our time this day, Lord, and this holiday weekend. May you be the one through whom we remember, through whom we give honor and glory and praise. I pray too, Lord, for upcoming events here from our hangout on June 13th, where we're going to get together again for games and dinner and just celebrating, to um, our new series on sharing our stories. May those personal testimonies and witnesses, Lord, truly give you glory. To this new sermon series, to our campus ministry and its opportunities in the fall. Lord, all these things we place into your care and into your keeping. In the name of Jesus, who is King who is Lord. Amen.